Deborah, so very nice to have you here with us on All Music Matters. Thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really happy that you are as much as I am. First of all, congratulations on your brand new uh, single, Butterfly. Uh, Thank you. With EP, which is coming out on September the 1st, right? Um, yeah, the Wild Little Girl EP's release date is September 8th. Now your website says September the uh, September the eighth. Why does it say the first? Probably because that needs to be corrected <laughs> on the website. But it's uh, September eighth is the release date. Thank you. So it's September the eighth. Yeah. Tell me in general, how did this album come together? Well, it came together very piecemeal. Um, you know, I I started recording. Initially, I was just going to record some demos of new songs like Butterfly, mm -hmm. and the demos started to come out so well that I realized I wanted to do a new record. Um, my previous album, Get Free, mm -hmm. um, had been out for a little while, and I just realized it was time to do something new, and um, Butterfly is the first single, and what we're doing is we're actually pre-releasing five singles from the EP with music videos. Oh, okay. So every every month we're releasing a single and a music video. And then um, up until the release of the EP on September 8th, and then that will come out with those five songs and a live bonus track. Um, so it's been really fun to incorporate visuals this time around. Mm -hmm. uh, and Butterfly, you know, I, I named the EP Wild Little Girl because I realized all the songs have something to do with... Um, a woman finding her inner wild little girl. Um, and that's a reference to the fact, I'm sure you're aware of, that there have been studies that have shown that, that once girls hit puberty, they become um, a lot, they're, 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 they're kind of afraid to study math and science. They're afraid to look like they're smart. They sort of lose some of their spirit and their fire as they become socialized um, according to their gender in our, in our Western culture, mm -hmm. they tend to lose that, um, they can lose like that spark and that wildness that they have when they're around 11 or 12 and they're just exploring everything and super excited about everything. Um, and so that's something I kind of wanted to look at in, on this record. So you, uh, done a quote for Butterfly, you said that it's kind of a love song, from a perspective of a shy girl who's been messing around with a rock star type of guy. I like, and <laughs> yeah. the whole metaphor of it. I like, I like it. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. I, <clears throat> and this sort of comes back to this idea that, um, you know, often as we step out into dating and we're, we're seeking something, a lot of times when we first start dating people, we're sort of seeking something inside ourselves. And I think that's why, we have groupies because um, people people want to connect with music and people, women want to connect, for example, with, they see a rock musician, he's got this sort of 
power and this expressiveness and this wildness and this kind of glory. And they want to connect with that in themselves Mm -hmm. and they don't, maybe they don't really know how, or they don't feel like they have permission, but they do feel like they have permission to, you know, be his groupie or date him. And, um, I don't know. I felt like when I was growing up, I wanted to start playing guitar when I was 15. I was just strongly discouraged as a, as a girl, um, that was considered kind of unladylike to play Mm -hmm. electric guitar. And I just, um, Butterfly starts off as this sort of masochistic love song where she's saying, I don't care. I know he's going to hurt me. I know I'm just a moth drawn to his flame, but I don't care. I want this experience. And in the end, she discovers that she's kind of got her own power and her own self-will, and she's not really in love with this guy. She just wants this experience Mm -hmm. of aliveness. It's crazy that you mentioned groupies because most people seek them as whores essentially think oh no she just sleeps with members of the band or whatever she's trying this trying that but however if you see how much of an influence they had on the music it's just crazy that's a really good point it sounds like you've read pamela debar's book no. i'm with the band um you would love it it's really good i mean look i'm not um advocating that women go out and you know sleep with rock yeah, stars i think women should become rock stars right <laughs> Um, but I think that the groupie phenomenon, you're right. So many groupies have inspired fantastic music and have been great muses. Mm -hmm. Um, but in part, you know, when women are, are limited to the role of muse, they don't get to be artists. Yeah. And that's sort of what I'm, what I'm trying to get at. That's quite a huge, um, assumption there and culture wise, color wise, you know, how black people are being oppressed. I mean, I think that black people have dealt with a similar experience in that there's sort of this idea of the, um, it's called the magic Negro, where it's like you have these movies where a black person shows up, but in the role of sort of this um, savant, you know, who makes everything better for the the white protagonist. Mm -hmm. And it's a sort of a muse-like role again and you're right to say that you know that's a that's a a very limiting role for a person of color in a in a film for example or a book but it's it's common and you know in my in my book the language of the blues I learned a lot about this aspect of um the black experience you you take a a blues man like Robert Johnson for Mm -hmm. example who is portrayed in the culture as sort of this, this primitive, um, he just, he sold his soul to the devil and that's why he's this great musician. Well, when you actually talk to people who knew Robert Johnson, which I did, um, I had a in-depth interview with Robert Jr. Lockwood, for Mm -hmm. example, who grew up with Robert Johnson, um, because Robert Johnson was dating his mother. So they lived together for about seven years And Robert Jr. Lockwood said Robert Johnson was brilliant. He read constantly. He was an incredible musician who could hear something one time, pick up his guitar and play it. He had um, incredible abilities and incredible intelligence. Um, But that doesn't fit in with this sort of myth Mm -hmm. of the blues man, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of Robert Johnson, he was quite a unique character in a sense, because as you said, he picked up onto anything, and that's what made his records quite unique. Um, whether you, from start to finish, uh, whether it was Stones of My Past Way or Love and Vain, you'd see how much influence that music coming from the radio had influenced him. Yeah, you make a very good point. And one of the reasons that this myth developed that Robert Johnson had sold his soul to the devil was because he had um, essentially a photographic memory for sound, for music. Yeah. And it was said by people who knew him that if a record was playing, um, even in the background while he was having a conversation, he could pick up the guitar and play what had been on that record. Um, he had He really had a touch of musical genius. Um, so I agree. I mean, I think with, with my book and with my music, I'm sort of trying to, to expand the, um, the view of women, you know, mm -hmm. and then with my book, hopefully expand a little bit the view of the blues, you know, and the, the view of the contribution of West Africans and African Americans to American culture. I would like to go back to your childhood, you said that you were discouraged to play the electric guitar. And you've kind of put a, a, a funny tale of how your mother was mortified in your bio and the website when you told her. Like, she was. Her. And I mean, she was just trying to do her job, which as, as a mother of a daughter is to socialize your daughter to grow up and be a successful female in our culture. So I remember that it was funny. I I, I just had this passion for electric guitar since I first heard it. And I, I used to um, sing along with guitar solos instead of lyrics to songs. Mm -hmm. I just found myself singing the solos. And I just had this desire to play electric guitar that was overwhelming. And I finally got up my nerve to ask her and if I could get possibly get an electric guitar. And she was just like, no. And <laughs> I said, why? And she said, that would be unladylike. <laughs> and um, I said, mom, that's that's really sexist. And she said, well, it's just too loud, you know, but meanwhile, my drum, my brother picked up the drums and had a drum set in the basement of our house. <laughs> that was extremely loud, yeah. you know, and then in his bedroom, but it was okay for him to be loud because he was a boy, mm -hmm. you know, but for a girl, it's not okay to be loud. I, I see where you're coming from. And I mean, I that's a big issue. It, it is. And it's still going. So, Oh Yeah. So going back to your point, which is that is not unladylike, so what is a woman's role in a society if you look into it for you as as a woman in the music industry? So how do you see it? Uh, oh, gosh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I just want to see women reach their fullest potential. And I mean, the same goes for people of color. You know, we're all striving to... Um, you know, release our, our full potential. And I think in doing so, then we also free up the rest of society to reach its full potential as well. Anytime a group of people are oppressed, it's really society that loses out. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there might be one group that benefits um, from white privilege, for example, but society as a whole is less vigorous and less vibrant. So, I mean, I see the role of women today as... Well, for example, in the United States, we can see that women are leading the charge and the resistance against uh, the Trump administration, mm -hmm. um, which I find really encouraging. And so our organizations like Black Lives Matter and Move On 
Um, so, I mean, I think the women's role in society today is to be themselves and fully unleash their potential. And speaking of that, you are part of the Fender Girl Rock Nation. Mm-hmm, yeah. Can you explain what exactly is that so people would know more about that? Yeah, that's a program that Fender started to encourage more girls to play electric guitar. And so when I heard that, I was, of course, very excited about that because as a girl, I had been discouraged to play electric guitar. And I think women are still discouraged by a lot of the um, uh, advertising and press around electric guitar. I mean, if you open up guitar magazines, you see a lot of ads that have scantily clad women mm -hmm. straddling guitars and amplifiers. And it's, it's very clear that those ads are designed to appeal to uh, male teenagers, not female teenagers, unless that's a, a gay female teenager. So it's very exciting to me that Fender is recognizing that there's a huge market out there of girls who want to play electric guitar and why not try to reach them and give them role models um, like me and Anna Popovich and some of the other women that have been signed on to Fender Girl Rock Nation. But the thing is with as you said, with people, naked-clad women and all, some of them actually tend to do that just to prove their sexuality or just to prove how strong they can be. So what is your opinion towards that? Well, I think if you're talking about a model in a, um, in a guitar, in an advertisement for a guitar magazine, that's different. And I don't have any problem with a, a model, you know, be, you know, being scantily clad in an ad. I'm just pointing out that those ads are yeah, yeah. pretty clearly targeted to men, to men, to the male gaze, but for performers who want to express their sexuality, I'm all for that. I mean, I think Madonna was, has always been incredibly vocal and powerful about that. Um, I, in my videos, I, you know, I feel like part of our wildness is, is our sexuality. So, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have a problem in my videos with expressing myself, expressing that part of myself. I think it's part of my power, part of my wildness. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's important as long as there's a difference between doing it for the male gaze and oh, doing it yeah. because it's a part of you. So... What kind of music were you listening to while you were growing up? Because talked a lot about, you know, singing along with guitar parts instead of lyrics. So Yeah, yeah. Um, I fell in love with sort of 70s kind of album rock pretty early on. It, it was funny. My friends were all listening to um, stuff that was on the radio and that was like pop music, which was cool and I liked it. But I had a neighbor who used to work on his car in the driveway mm. And he would always be blasting this mysterious, sexy, weird, freaky music. And I, you know, I was kind of nervous to go up to him. But one day I just said, what are you listening to? And he said, Cashmere. Oh, God. And I thought that was the name of the band <laughs> for the longest time. <laughs> but it was Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And I just was crazy about any of that stuff. And... When I would try to play it to my friends, they would just hate it. They would say, that guy's just screaming, you know. But it stirred something in me. And Jimmy Page's guitar playing, you know, uh, Robert Plant's voice. I mean, it just did something 
you know, and then I just started looking up, looking for more of that kind of guitar-based rock, and that's what I really fell in love with. So aside from Led Zeppelin, who where else was in the past? Oh, I, I loved Creedence Clearwater Revival. Oh, yes. Um, uh, and then I, you know, I got really excited about the blues. Um, but, you know, then I also really got into, into punk rock. Um, because I think there was sort of a wildness and a freedom in punk, too. So, like, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, like, all that early punk, when I started to discover that, I just loved it. I would put the Sex Pistols on and, like, mosh around my living room all by myself because all my friends hated it. Um, you know, so I just found that I really responded viscerally to guitar. Like, whether it was distorted or lead or whatever, I just love that sound and then I got heavily into ministry and you know industrial industrial stuff that use guitar like ministry and prong mm-hmm. um so that kind of stuff in terms of the blues when were you first exposed well I was really lucky in my exposure to the blues because I had a friend I was like maybe 16 or 17 okay. and I had a actually had a crush on a guy who worked at the same place that I did that summer. Um, and he was older and he was actually managing a nightclub in Milwaukee downtown called mm-hmm. the Metropole. And he was bringing Chicago blues players to play there. And he said, you have to come see this. He said, if you want, at the time I hadn't started playing guitar yet, I was still kind of intimidated, but he knew I had confided in him that I wanted to. And he said, if you want to play guitar, you need to come see this. And he snuck me into the club one night and the show was Coco Taylor with her guitar player, Sun Seals. It changed my life, that show. I flipped out. I mean, I, um, I remember sitting cause the Metropole theater had seats and then a sort of a stage and a small dance floor. And I just remember somehow flying out of my seat onto the dance floor, compelled by the music. And I really hadn't danced. I really hadn't seen that many live concerts and I just flipped out. I mean, I just danced my ass off and, and then Sun Seals guitar playing mm-hmm. was a revelation to me because one of the reasons I hadn't picked up the guitar yet was when I would hear players on the radio, they were playing very, very fast, um, complex kind of, you know, or you're listening to Jimmy Page. I mean, it's very intimidating. Sun had a way of just hitting one note and holding it that would just flatten everyone in the room. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that was a completely different approach to the guitar. He wasn't playing as fast as he could. He wasn't, he was really seeking to have a, powerful emotional impact with one note and I thought okay that's a different approach to the guitar and to music it's more mature it's more powerful and maybe that's something that I could try you know and from then on what was it like from after seeing that concert were you surprised or Um, yeah, I had never seen anything like it. I mean, I grew up in a very, uh, you know, in a white upper middle-class suburb. I really didn't know any black people. I didn't know really much about African-American culture, but I met some people at that show who were from the South side of Milwaukee, who were huge blues fans. And they started taking me to see a lot of blues shows. Um, and I began to learn more about it and, you know, see B.B. King and John Lee Hooker and, you know, I got to see a lot of great artists. Um, so it was a, it was a major education. 
but your mom in that sense. How did she feel, her daughter listening to the blues? Let oh, alone not well, my parents to... didn't know that I was going okay. to these shows. <laughs> okay, that, may, may, that makes sense then. Yeah, I mean, they knew I was dating somebody, but they didn't really know that on our dates we were like driving to cornfields in the middle of nowhere to see B.B. King, you oh. know, and that we were maybe the only white people there, usually. So, and since we're talking about the blues, uh, your book, which is The Language of the Blues, uh, from Alcrop to Ilzuzu, if I pronounced that right. That's right, yeah. Alcrop to Zuzu. Um, so, it's the definition book, holy-like book, that I think every music fan should have. So, tell me about the book a little bit, and how did you, did you come to an idea thinking, okay, I need to write a book, because it's... Sure. Um, Well, I had been doing some writing for Blues Review magazine, and I realized that, you know, all of us who were writing about the blues used words like mojo and hoodoo, and I didn't know where those words really came from, and I wasn't even sure I really knew what they meant, and it it struck me as maybe a little bit lazy on my part. Um, I wanted to know, well, you know, what language is mojo from i mean that's not an english word what is it so i started to make a list of these kinds of words and phrases everything from black hat bone to voodoo to um alco rub you know and i wound up with a list of about 100 words and i thought you know maybe there's a book here because i would like to investigate what these words really mean and the etymology behind them Um, so I wrote a book proposal and luckily, you know, I sold it to Billboard Books and I started working on the book. But what was cool was that, um, one of the first experiences I had was that I'd done, done my research and all the scholarly research said that the phrase killing floor from the famous Helen Wolf song referred to the slaughterhouses, the floors of slaughterhouses in Chicago, because during the Great Migration, when some six to seven million African-American people left the South Mm -hmm. and moved North looking for work and a better life, um, many of them took some of the most menial and and horrible jobs, like cleaning blood off the slaughterhouse floors in the Chicago stockyards. But when I met Hubert Sumlin, who was Wolf's closest friend Mm -hmm. and guitar player, and I started to tell him this, he stopped me short. And he said, that's not what that song's about at all. Um, told me an entirely different story that Wolf was referring to depression when he said Killin' Floor. And that's when I realized that the most important contribution I could make with my book would be to talk to the artists. Mm-hmm. Because it seemed like perhaps a lot of scholars had sort of overlooked actually talking to the artists themselves. Um, so that's what I tried to do. Um, and it's kind of had an Alan Lomax approach because that's what he used to do when he goes into a field yeah. and records people. And if you look how different his books are, because Lomax is kind of freestyling, if that's the right words to use. Um, he writes from experience. He went, he saw... He went to the Delta. Exactly. Yeah. So he knows exactly what's happening inside. However, you'd get like, people from the surface in a sense well I think that you know I mean it's normal for scholars in any field to stand on the shoulders of the scholars who've gone before them and to repeat what they learned and then take it further what I found in the blues is that there are there is some misinformation 
because of scholars doing that. Perhaps someone in a while back decided that Killing Floor was about the slaughterhouses, but maybe no one ever asked Howlin' Wolf or asked Willie Dixon or asked Hubert Sumlin. And I was just lucky enough that my first interview for my book was with Hubert Sumlin, and he sort of set me straight on several different songs. And that the prevailing wisdom in academia was... Uh, not what he thought the songs were about. Now, it could be that, that you know, Hubert had his own interpretations yeah. that, you know, maybe had their accuracy or inaccuracy as well. I don't know. But I thought that this was maybe something cool that I could do because I'm a musician and not a scholar. So I could really talk to other musicians about lyrics because I write songs myself, you know, and I felt like... And I ended up having incredible conversations with, you know, Robert Jr. Lockwood, Milton Campbell, Henry Gray, um, these legends of the blues, and really digging into like, well, what does hoodoo mean to you? And what does mojo mean as when you were growing up? You know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Was it hard to, to track down some of the artists? Yeah. Um, well, it was not hard to track them down. It was hard to convince their managers and publicists that they yeah. should give me an interview for my book because, you know, managers and publicists are doing their jobs, which is to help their artists promote their latest record. And doing an interview for a book doesn't really do that because you do an interview and then the book doesn't come out for two years, let's yeah. say. So I was getting turned down by every manager. <laughs> um, and the way that I got a lot of my interviews was, um, New York City had this day honoring the blues at Lincoln Center, okay. and there was a press conference that afternoon, and like all these artists I wanted to interview were going to be at the press conference. So I went, and you know their managers and publicists were there, and I just didn't know what I was going to do because I'd already been turned down by the managers and publicists. But then an autograph line formed where people were getting in line to get guitars and things signed by... Robert Jr. Lockwood, Milton Campbell, you know, Eddie Shaw, all these mm -hmm. blues legends. So I just got in the line <laughs> and I went down the line and I spoke to each artist and I explained my book and asked if they would want to participate. And I walked out with 11 home phone numbers. Um, they all understood the significance of being able to tell their history and their stories in a more in-depth way than like a press interview for their record. Um, and that's how I landed a lot of my interviews. Um, so Dr. John did a foreword for the book. And he is yeah. quite a prominent figure in terms of what voodoo and hoodoo really is. Yeah. Um, that was also another... I mean, I've just been so lucky with this book. And I really think it's because there's just so much goodwill toward the blues. Um, I had interviewed Dr. John for Blues Review Magazine mm -hmm. um, a couple years before, and we had just had an amazing time together. Uh, we met at his townhouse in New York. His wife was there, and we talked for like four hours, and oh, anyone goodness. who knows him knows he's a real good talker. Um, he's also super intelligent and very into language. If you... His own books, like his autobiography, Under a Hoodoo Moon, has its own glossary for... Mm -hmm. New Orleans slang and for the stuff that he just makes up, you know, that he says. So I called him um, when I was working on my book because I had, I couldn't, there are a few things I could not figure out no matter how much research I did mm -hmm. and no matter who I talked to. And that was, you know, why do musicians call a guitar an axe? 
why do mm-hmm. they call a, a club date a gig? And mm-hmm. it was just driving me insane. And I called him and he had the answer. He said, oh, that's all from the lottery business. Um, a gig was a three-number bet in the numbers lottery business. You didn't know if it was going to pay off or not. So musicians started calling their like little club dates gigs. Um, he said acts had originally been used by gangsters in the numbers business to describe their weapons. Like a Tommy gun was called an axe. And when the early electric guitars came out, they were shaped. They, they came out in cases that looked a lot like Tommy gun cases. Mm-hmm. So musicians, you know, who are always like sort of appropriating like underworld slang started calling their guitars axes. And so that just blew my mind. And then he and I start having all these different conversations. Um, I asked him if I could tape them. And, you know, because he would call me up. He's like, I just thought of something you got to put in the book, you know. And so when I asked him if we could do the forward, he said yes. And I was just super excited. It was really super generous. And I'm so incredibly grateful to him because he solved several mysteries in the book. I mean, he really, he's a very, very intelligent guy. I mean, anyone who knows him, I think can attest to his, his brilliance. And, but again, it's like what we talked about, you know, when it comes to the blues, people will give and they want this history put down. And Dr. John is no exception to that. He's a huge champion Mm -hmm. of, you know, New Orleans music and blues artists. And, um, I'm so incredibly grateful that he gave some of that energy to me for the book. And I think there's another thing about the blues that it's always misinterpreted, because it always has this unflattering language in it. Whether, like you, like you mentioned, many of whether is in relation to guns or whether is sex references and all that. Oh sure. Well, you know, there's a famous BB King quote. Um, I don't know if I can remember it exactly, but he says something to the effect that um, the way that people feel about the blues made me feel like I was black twice. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I mean, a lot of blues artists have stories of being discouraged by their parents to become blues musicians, you know, because their parents didn't want that music in the house. They didn't want um, the stigma of the blues, you know, as they were moving into the middle class um, as as African-Americans. Maybe they just didn't want that's, you know, that southern music, that reminder of, you know, grinding poverty. Um, there are a lot of different reasons, religious as well, for um, a distaste for the blues, even in the African-American community. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, when I talked to Bonnie Raitt, she said something really good. She said, you know, why don't we have a blues blues format on the radio? You know, blues is American music, and yet you've got country on the radio, you've got mm-hmm. rock on the radio. Why don't we have room for the blues? on the radio. And now thank God with satellite radio with there are blue shows, you know. Um but yeah, yeah, for sure. Um I think Elvis is great another great example. Yeah. Well yeah, I mean there you have a very marketable, handsome white boy. Oh yeah. Um and you know, Madonna kind of did the same thing with, with dance music. I mean when her early singles came out, they sounded just like a lot of the Latin tinged 
uh, urban, super urban dance music that was being produced here in New York City. And she basically did the same sound with, you know, Holiday and stuff like that. She was working with Jelly Bean Benitez, who was producing all that kind of stuff. But, you know, she dyed her hair blonde and she's, you know, gorgeous white woman. Um, so, yeah, that's that's all too common. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes a larger the larger picture and something I I try to address in my book is there's just a generally a huge underrepresentation of the West African influence on American culture, Absolutely. and not just in the African American part of American culture, but in just American culture. Period. We've got such African influence that we don't learn about in our schools. We learn all this stuff about Europeans who came here and colonized and stuff. But during the slave trade, um, five times as many West Africans were brought here as Europeans. I mean, they outnumbered European migrants five to one for a long period. Um, and that's something I really wanted to, I talked about a lot in the book is concepts like cool and soul, words like, you know, banana, tigger, yam. I mean, we've got a huge African influence that I want to see taught in the schools, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think I agree with that. I think it should be. And and you also mentioned how in a period of time that music was, uh, musical instruments were stripped away. Are you talking about from from black people? Yes. When, uh, when slaves trade started, people came in with their instruments, and that's initially how they communicated with one another. Yeah, exactly. And that was put down after there were a series of slave rebellions because uh, West African languages are tonal, which means that you can change the meaning of a word by changing how you say it, yeah. which uh, in English we don't, we don't have that, but there are other languages around the world, Asian languages, and um, that, that do this. So, you know, a lot of the slaves that were brought over here were captured soldiers, and they knew how to communicate with their drums and how to you know, make military plans. So they were drumming and communicating across plantations with each other. And that's when you had a series of slave uprisings because, you know, they were able to communicate, okay, we're going to meet at this time in this field and then we're going to, we're going to go nuts, you know? Um, so once the plantation owners realized that slaves were using their drums to communicate and set up these uh, rebellions, they passed laws forbidding slaves to own a drum, play a drum, and eventually play any instrument or even learn to read or write. They just really tried to destroy any any opportunity for communication that could lead to rebellion. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the sentence was execution. People were summarily executed if they were found with an instrument or a drum, you know. It was very, very serious level of oppression. However, but then you had uh, people bidding out their own instruments, which that kind of takes us into a whole other level of how the music from then on evolved and how inspiration from one genre to another kind of... Well, I think that's why you see that the blues is such a vocal music mm -hmm. because, you know, the only thing people had left, uh, enslaved people had left, was singing. So you have work songs in the field and they developed into the, you know, the blues forms that we know today. Um, and then eventually, after, you know, you started to see people playing guitar and things like that. But it took a long time for drumming to come into the blues. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. In the sense of involvement, the blues fastly evolving, for instance. 
So what is your projection towards that? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think there are the blues is beloved worldwide, which is pretty cool. Um, it's played by artists of all different colors and nationalities. Um, there are really strong African-American blues artists emerging all the time. You had, you know, Shamika Copeland. Yeah. Now you have like uh, Cedric Burnside, mm -hmm. um, you know, Gary Clark Jr. Um, I don't know. I'm pretty excited for the blues. It seems like there's a real resurgence of interest in the blues and there are a lot of great artists coming up. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the uh, international blues competition that takes place in Memphis every year where yeah. blues societies send their very best to Memphis to compete with each other. And out of that, we've seen, you know, like Mr. Sip, who's one of my favorite new blues artists. Um, who else? Gosh, there have been just so many great winners of that that have gone on to have international careers. Um, so I'm pretty excited about the blues currently. I mean, then you, you have to look at hip hop and see like, what a huge influence hip hop has become, you know, and how that's blown up out of, out of an African-American culture and become a worldwide phenomenon as well. Yeah. Starting from the, the, uh, the last poets. Mm -hmm. Well, and hip hop, you know, goes back to West Africa too. I mean, where verbal duels were really common. Um, and you know, these sort of duels that involved in like your, your mama kind of insults going back and forth and toasting. And I mean, all, all that stuff. Um, existed in West African culture. Is there still, or are they still underappreciation happening, the female artists in the music industry today? Um, I think, yeah, of course, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot of great female artists. I think specifically as a guitar player, it can be challenging. Um, you know, there's a lot of excitement about female guitar players and there's also sort of a lot of sort of patronizing kind of stuff. And one of the things that I find really, really disturbing is, is the sexualization of female guitar players from a sort of toxic perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a mouthful. But what I mean by that is you take someone like Samantha Fish, for example, who's yeah. a, you know, really solid, competent guitar player. And, I saw this YouTube video of her playing live a few years back, taken by someone in the audience. And it was a man who was holding the camera and his buddies. And all they were doing were making disgusting remarks about her ass and how, what they wanted to do to her. Like she's playing this raging guitar solo. If she were a guy, they would be going on and on about, you know, man, that was awesome. What a player. Wow. And instead, they were just making really gross remarks about wanting to have sex with her. Like, it was, in, and you could just tell it was a put down. You know, it wasn't glorifying her. It wasn't saying, wow, she's a great guitarist and she's also really attractive. It was strictly that type of male sexually harassing stuff. And that's, you know, that ugliness is out there and is directed at, at female guitar players. It's directed at women anytime we step into a male-dominated zone. Whether we're competing in the workplace with a, a male and we start getting sexually harassed because we've stepped out of our, of our place and, and they're uncomfortable with the competition. Or whether we're rock guitar players and 
there's a su subset of men who are uncomfortable with the competition. I mean, that's just a fact, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't believe you're the only one who said such remark because you get a huge number of female artists going out, going out being vocal, as you mentioned earlier, Madonna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's interesting because Madonna now is, is being very vocal about being an older woman. And um, she said in an interview in Harper's Bazaar a month or two ago, something really sad and also very powerful. She said that her ex-husband was pressuring her to quit. You know, like, why do you still need to make another record? Why do you still need to tour? Aren't you successful enough? And she said, you know, he didn't understand that I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. I I love to create. I want to do this. I'm not going to stop because I'm too old or I'm somehow unseemly as an attractive older woman to be out there. You know, it's all this kind of stuff. I mean, nobody's saying, Keith Richards' wife isn't saying to him, you really have to go do another tour? Why? You know, but Madonna had to deal with that from her husband. But it's it's that the male domination that it's kind of t overpowering things and pressuring women, whether it was a young aspiring artist to be or. Well, I think that you don't want to tar and feather all men with the same brush. I definitely you have had. I mean, I've had men sit down and teach me stuff on the guitar, show me how to you know work with my amps and pedals. Is when I was starting out. I be super generous. I mean. I would not be here today playing if it weren't for men that took a chance on me and that were really generous and kind. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of men out there who support female musicians, see them as peers, want them as peers, um, and are excited to work with them, you know, and then there's also men who don't want, don't want to see them there. And I've had, I've had auditions where I've been told I didn't get the gig because I was female, that I was actually the best player they saw, but the band in the end decided they didn't want a woman as part of their image you know so it's it's complex um, and yeah I mean all we can do as women is seek out you know I mean the guys in my band are amazing um amazing musicians super supportive and I couldn't ask for better better guys to have in my band you know and and that's the irony of I'm assuming those guys were wearing women's clothes in a sense. Whether you look at it from the 90s, yeah, the it's funny that you say that because the one band in particular that I can think of, the singer very much was in like a fishnet shirt and <laughs> eyeliner, and you know we had this great audition, and the bass player said, "Wow, you're like in the top, you know, one percent of people we've seen." That just felt really good, and then the singer just sort of looked me up and down and took a drag on his cigarette, and he said, "Yeah, but I don't know about your image," and I said what do you mean about my image? You know, thinking like, does he want me to wear something different? I can do that. That's not a big deal. And he goes, you know, female. Okay. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think you could do anything better for your image than to put a woman in your band. And I packed up and left. It's, it's a mess. Um, so you just got to seek out, you know, you got to seek out people who will be your champion. And there are a lot of men out there who will be, you know? And so that's just the way to go. I think so far we've done quite a mighty good job. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Oh, I would just like to encourage um, women to pick up instruments and just start playing them. And, you know, I 
didn't have lessons on the guitar. I just started to play and it was kind of hard, but it was also really fun and exciting, you know, and just don't be, don't be intimidated. Um, because music is just a delight and, um, it's also a way to kind of plug into your own power and to access it and to, to let it fill you up and make you feel more powerful in this world. You know, I really believe that. Um, I'd also encourage people to check out my new single butterfly and, and the music video on YouTube. Um, I've got a new single and video coming out on May 20th called shake it. And then my record will be out, um, September 8th, wild little girl. Absolutely. And I think uh, I agree with Deborah and I think all of you should, because it's really great. Um, before I leave you to it, how do you describe your music? I mean, that, that should have been done from the start. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, somebody said to me recently, it's like Sheryl Crow is fronting government mule. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny and kind of, kind of accurate. <laughs> um, and I saw a, one from Metal Hammer. It says, it's as if Sheryl Crow, it's remi her voice reminds us of PJ Harvey and Sheryl Crow, while her guitar playing reminds us of Jimi Hendrix. And I thought that was a very accurate Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'm honored to to be mentioned in the same phrase as any, any of those artists. Um, but yeah, I mean, my voice is kind of sounds a bit like Cheryl, you know, and she, gosh, she's such a good singer. So any comparison to her, I'm really excited. And but but I have this big passion for electric guitar and distortion. And I love to play lead. And, you know, and it's kind of cool because there are still as yet aren't that many female artists that are singing and playing their own lead guitar. And I'm excited to see that there's more, uh, there are more, especially in the blues for some reason, that seems to be where it's really coming out, but there are more artists now, female artists who are like writing their own songs, singing, and then not standing back while the man steps forward and plays the lead, you know, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really cool. Uh, great. Well, thank you so much, Deborah, for, giving us your time and sitting down and talking with us about your new album and also your book. Thank you for talking with me and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, hi, this is Deborah Davey and you're listening to my new single butterfly on all music matters.